So Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arok, king of Elisa, Kedolamia, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Edma, Shemibia, king of Zaborim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedolima, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteen years, Kedolima and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephraim and Astoroth Kanim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Inim in Shava Kirathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Alparan on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpah, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the countries of all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling with Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Edmer, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kedolima, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amurphel, king of Shinar, and Arok, king of Elisa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of butamine pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemies took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ascol and of Anna. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that the king's men had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as then. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the woman and the people. Verse 17, After his return from the defeat of Kedalama and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tent of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a tread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the man who went with me. Let Edna, Ascol, and Memory take their share. This is God's word. For the sceptical, is seen as just wishful thinking. Maybe some kind of Christianized form of positive thinking. Perhaps irrelevant to life in the real world. Maybe some see faith as a form of escapism 
to distract us or to make us feel good uh, despite the challenges of the real world, maybe just to, for us to escape for a while. You know, last week, Ollie quoted the words of famous American author Mark Twain, and he said, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. And Karl Marx would agree with him. Right? German philosopher Karl Marx was also critical of faith, and he described religion as the opium of the people, used by those in power to make oppressed workers feel better about themselves, and perhaps to distract them or to desensitize them to their real problems. Well, we may not be as skeptical as Twain or Marx, but do we wrestle with also a disconnect between faith and life? And we come on a weekend, we hear about God's promises, and when we leave, perhaps somewhat encouraged, lifted up, but then Monday comes around. And what confronts us are the demands of life and work, and perhaps the notions of walking by faith uh, seem quite remote. Maybe it's the last thing that we think about as we wake up on a Monday morning and face the problems of the week. And we may even think that walking by faith is only for the idealistic or the super spiritual, whereas the rest of us have real-world problems to worry about. So how does faith in God's promises make a difference to how we live in the world? You know, perhaps to ask ourselves, does it make a difference? To how we live in the world. You know, is our faith theory, merely theory, or does it really change the way I live Mondays to Fridays? Does it change my relationships? Does it change how I work? Does it change the way I am at school with my friends? Now, Genesis 14 addresses this key question. You know, among the main chapters in Genesis describing Abraham's life, you know, if you look at Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, which are really the bulk of the chapters that talk about Abram, Genesis 14 is quite unique. Genesis 14 stands out in this way. In, in the rest of the chapters that I just mentioned, God speaks to Abram, making promises and then assuring Abram of the truths, of the truth of his promises. But in Genesis 14, God doesn't say anything. I think it's the only chapter in this uh, collection of chapters where God doesn't speak. But even as God is silent in this chapter, He is nonetheless working out His promises amid the rough and tumble of Abraham's life. Now, this chapter is where the rubber of faith meets the road of life. And in this chapter, we see how Abraham clings to God's promises when confronted with real life, when confronted with the trials and the temptations of life in a broken and fallen world. Now, this is a chapter for us, you know, because we live in a world filled with trials and temptations. So how do we respond? How does faith make a difference as we live in such a world? Like Abraham, this chapter encourages us to cling to God's promises when we face trials and temptations. Biblical faith, I put it to us, is not theoretical, but profoundly practical. And our faith in God should transform how we live in the world. And in fact, when, when we live differently in the world because of our faith in God's promises, this shows that we serve the right king. So this chapter poses the question to us as well, which king do we truly serve? So two points as we work through this chapter. 
Number one, in trials, cling to God's promises. Looking at verses 1 to 16. So our passage begins on an ominous note. You find that trouble is brewing. In Genesis 13, things seem quite positive. Lot saw the Jordan Valley and it was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, quite an idyllic place. But now, in that very same place, the dark clouds of war are looming, overshadowing the land. Just like in the days that we live, there is geopolitical turmoil in the world. It says in verses 1 to 3, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shina, Arioch, king of Elisa, Kidoloma, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shamiba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoah. And all, and, these, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So war is at, war is at hand. You know, tired of serving Kidaloma as his vassals for the past 12 years, these five kings uh, collected around Sodom and Gomorrah, these five kings rebelled against Kidaloma in the 13th year. But their rebellion is short-lived because the very next year, in the 14th year, Kidaloma takes three other kings with him and he sweeps through the land on a mission of vengeance to punish those who have stopped paying him tribute. Because essentially, if you are a vassal state, you pay tribute to the king that you serve, but they refuse. So Kidaloma comes and he punishes the rebels. And, and Kidaloma's force is a formidable force. I mean, don't, don't, you know, don't neglect that fact. You know, the con- their conquests are described in verses 5 to 7 of our passage. You know, notice how Kidaloma and his allies defeated the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. Now, who are these folks? Well, these are a people of giants. Right? These are the giants of the land. They belong to a race known for being exceptionally big and tall. Right? As it says in Deuteronomy 2, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. And like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, and the Moabites call them Emim. So the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim are giants who dwell in the land, you know, not a pushover by any means. In fact, Scripture mentions this particular king of the Rephaim called uh, Og. I love the name, Og. Og, king of Bashan, was part of the Rephaim. And you know, here's how Scripture describes his bed. Interesting that you know, Deuteronomy highlights the place where he sleeps. So Og slept on a bed of iron. Right? Not very comfortable, but perhaps good for him. He slept on a bed of iron that was about four meters long and two meters wide. Right? You know, our single beds are about two meters long and one meter wide. Right? So clearly someone who is twice the size of a regular person. That's Og, king of Bashan, who was part of the Rephaim. In fact, later on, if you read on in the book of Numbers, the Israelites refused to enter the land. Why? Because they were terrified of the Anakim, the giants. They, they were terrified. They felt that they couldn't defeat the Anakim. And here we are. Kidaloma sweeps through the land and he makes easy work of the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. So it, says, it says something about the kind of force that Kidaloma is bringing to the land. Now, after Kidaloma's alliance defeats the giants, he turns his attention to Sodom and Gomorrah. So after that victory, they battle against the five kings, so four against five. 
The four kings led by Kidaloma, they battled against the five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bila. And once again, Kidaloma conquers. He defeats the five kings. Right, it says in verses 10 to 12, The valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now, this is a rout. This, this is total defeat for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not even close. And then the enemy, that's Kitaloma, they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, who was well, the son of Abram's brother, Abram's nephew, who interestingly enough was dwelling in Sodom. And they took Lot's possessions and they went their way. So Abram suffers the loss of his nephew Lot, who is captured by Kidaloma. Through no fault of his own, Abram experiences a trial living in a fallen world. You know, due to circumstances beyond our control, we will also suffer the sins of others. As Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But Lot himself must also bear some responsibility for his predicament. You know, Lot surely should have known better than to have been in Sodom in the first place. Right? As, as we read in chapter 13, Sodom was notorious for its wickedness. You know, but as we, see, as we saw in chapter 13, Lot lived by sight rather than by faith. And trusting in his own judgment and wisdom, he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Right? Chapter 13, verse 12 although he knew that the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. In fact, what's worse is that since chapter 13, Lot's ties with Sodom has on, have only become deeper and stronger. He has gone from living near Sodom to actually living in Sodom. That's what we read in, chap in chapter 14. Now, beloved, I, I wonder if you realize that compromising with worldliness it doesn't happen overnight. You know, we don't wake up one morning and suddenly fall into grievous sins. At least it doesn't happen like that most of the time. But our declension or, or our compromise with worldliness often happens by degrees, doesn't it? Gradually. You know, we move closer and closer and closer to Sodom. It takes place gradually. You know, for example, a married man or a married woman start spending more time with a colleague at work, and he or she rationalizes that, say, oh, it's okay, it's just coffee. It's okay, it's just lunch. And besides, we, we get along, we can really talk. Or if you want a less dramatic example, you know, when we first become Christians, we, you know, we love Jesus. <clears throat> we want to serve Him. Right? We want to give our lives to Him. We want to follow Him. But isn't it often our experience that over time, as we live the Christian life, we become more and more preoccupied with work, with school, with relationships, perhaps with our children's success, with just the cares of life. And you ever experience this where you, you begin to lose your fervor for the Lord? You know, and our lives look more and more like the world around us. And maybe we wake up one morning and realize, hey, my life actually looks no different from my non-Christian friends or family members. I like the same things. I pursue the same things. 
I'm ambitious for the same things, I delight in the same things. So what, what difference does faith make in my life? Well, I think that's why Jesus warned us in the New Testament that we should remember Lot's wife. And here in chapter 14, I think we would do well to take warning from Lot himself and ask ourselves, how might we be slouching towards Sodom? There are other areas in our life where we are moving closer and closer to Sodom. Maybe is there someone in your life, maybe a good Christian friend, who is able to maybe point out these blind spots in your life, someone who can perhaps even challenge and admonish you. Say, hey brother, hey sister, I I think you you need to turn away from these sins of worldliness in your life. You need to turn back to Christ. Is there someone who can say that to us? Or perhaps someone we can say that to in love for their spiritual good. So although Lot may have landed himself in this mess, Abraham shows grace to his nephew. He doesn't begrudge his nephew. And when he hears about Lot's trouble, Abraham doesn't fold his arms and say, oh, I told you so. But rather, Abraham acts. Right? He takes action immediately. He let forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he chases after Kedaloma in an attempt to rescue Lot from captivity. And I think in this, Abraham really reflects the character of God. He, he shows God's mercy to someone who clearly doesn't deserve grace, right? Because this person had landed himself in trouble. Nonetheless, Abraham pursues in the hope of rescuing. I think that really reflects the character of God. And this man of faith shows us how we are to live as God's people in the world. By God's grace, we show courageous compassion to those in need not because they are deserving, but because we want to reflect the character of the God who has saved us. Courageous compassion, driven by faith in God's promises. Now, going forth to fight against Kidaloma took faith. As we've seen, Kidaloma's forces were no pushovers, right? They were a formidable force, battle-hardened, very experienced, a very effective force. They had vanquished the giants and the alliance of the five kings. Abraham, on the other hand, could not boast of superior forces. I think the text specifies the number of men he had, 318. You know, hardly an earth-shattering force. And even if we add in the, the men from his allies, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, you know, Abraham's army would still have been outmatched by Kidaloma's forces, right? these four kings who defeated five kings. Now, humanly speaking, the odds were stacked against Abram. But he went forth, and he went forth in faith, trusting not in his forces, trusting not in his own military ability or might, but he went forth in faith, trusting in God's promises. Remember the promises that God made to Abram in Genesis 12? He promised Abram a people, that he would make Abram into a great nation, He promised that he would make Abraham's name great. He promised Abraham a place that, yes, Abraham, you you will have an inheritance, a land. And particularly, God promised Abraham blessing, that he would bless those who bless Abraham and he would curse those who dishonored Abraham. 
know, in kidnapping Lot, Kedaloma had dishonored Abraham. And even more than that, Kedaloma had set himself up in opposition to Abraham's God. And Abraham knew that. And Abraham trusted that God, this just and holy God, that he would make things right, that he would brook no opposition. So Abraham went trusting that this God would fight for him to defend the honour of his name, God's name. And that's, that was Abraham's confidence. So his faith wasn't a sort of escapist, wishful thinking that distracted him from life's problems. Rather, Abraham's faith faced his trials head on. He didn't run away from difficulty, but he faced them. He confronted his trials because he trusted in the, in the certainty of God's promises. And his faith led to obedient action. He wasn't passive. He didn't sit on his hands. He didn't hope for the best. But he took action boldly, trusting in God's promises. Abraham fought by faith, trusting that the battle belongs to the Lord. And you notice what Abraham does? Right? He divided his forces and made a bold surprise attack by night on Kidaloma. You know, this is a man of faith taking bold action because he trusts in God. And God gave Abraham the victory. Verses 15 and 16. Abraham defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Uh, beloved, I, I pray that our faith would lead us to this kind of bold action. Right? Faith is not passive. Faith doesn't mean, oh, I just sit down and do nothing. No, faith trusts God, and because we trust God, we take action, we, we obey. We go forth to do His work. We go forth with the gospel and call others to follow Him. Right? That, that's faith at work. You know, we, don't, we don't just sit, sit down on our hands and notice all the things that could go wrong. No, faith just trusts God. Faith recognizes that we go not in our own strength, but we go because the Lord fights for His people. The Lord will glorify His own name. Now, doesn't that encourage us to go forth, to leave our comfortable lives behind and to go forth boldly and to speak of Him and to glorify Him in the world? I think sometimes we need to be honest with ourselves. We live in a safe country and perhaps some of that safe culture has rubbed off on us as well. You know, perhaps ask ourselves, is our Christianity too safe? Is our Christianity too safe? William Carey, who is known as the father of modern missions, said at the inaugural meeting of the Baptist Missionary Society, he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. Now that is faith, bold faith. Not faith in our own abilities, but faith in God. Because we know that He desires to glorify Himself in His world. And He will do so. And we can trust Him as we go forth. Now Abraham's rescue of Lot foreshadows another rescue later in the Old Testament. Quite similar. You, know, you may know the story in 1 Samuel 30. Now, one of Abraham's descendants, David, also strengthened himself in the Lord when he and his men lost their families and possessions. I think that's the next slide. And in that situation, 
David's fat, no, he, he and his men's families were captured by the Amalekites. And like his ancestor Abram, David trusted God. And he went forth in faith and he defeated the enemy and brought back all the captives. So this, is, this becomes a bit of a recurring pattern in Scripture where a man of faith goes forth and wins back the captives. David is the next in line. And then after that, David points forward to an even greater king, to an even greater son of Abraham who comes to set the captives free, to, who comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. And this son of Abraham would come to save God's people. You know, God has kept His promises to Abraham. Ultimately, how? By sending His son, Abraham's offspring. And this son, Jesus, will rescue us from sin's captivity. Although God made us for the joy and freedom of knowing Him, you know, we have all turned away from the freedom of knowing God and living for Him, and we have sold ourselves into slavery. By rebelling against God, we have chosen to serve sin as slaves to sin rather than as God's children. Now, if you look at Genesis 14, I don't know about you, but the character that I most identify with in Genesis 14 is Lot. Like Lot, I have moved closer and closer to Sodom. You know, like Lot, I have sold myself to sin and I need rescue. I need someone to save me from a situation where I can't save myself. Praise God that He has done so through His Son. God, who is rich in grace and mercy, gave His beloved Son for us. And Jesus bore our guilt on the cross. He died, bearing God's judgment against sinners so that those of us who have gladly served sin can be forgiven and made right with God if we believe in Jesus. And through His death and resurrection, Jesus has set us free from, captiv from captivity to sin. He set us free to live for God, to enjoy Him, to know Him, and to have the joy of the freedom of following Him. As it says in Ephesians 4, when He ascended on high, He led captive the captives. Of Romans 6, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Oh, beloved, in times of trouble, Abraham believed God. And in our trials, we too can cling to God's promises, which have been fulfilled in the one who sets us free, Jesus Christ. So take heart, beloved. Take heart. Because Jesus, the son of Abraham, fights for us. The battle belongs to the Lord. Therefore, we can walk by faith. We can take bold action. We can go forth with courageous compassion and bold obedience. Because this son of Abraham fights for us. And he's won the battle for us. Jesus has set us free to live for him. No longer for ourselves. So trust him. Cling to his promises. Our second point is in temptations, cling to God's promises. Verses 17 to 24. 
the trials aside, success can also pose its challenges. You know, we can stumble in times of adversity, but we can also stumble in times of prosperity. As it says in Proverbs 30, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? You know, after his successful campaign against Kidaloma, Abraham is met by the king of Sodom, verse 17. You know, Sodom comes and maybe he's a bit pompous. So he brusquely says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. You know, kind of just giving commands to Abram. You know, Sodom may have been rude, but his offer seems reasonable enough. Right? After all, Abram did defeat Kidaloma and surely he was entitled to his share of the spoils, right? You know, you put in work, so you deserve this. Why don't you just take the spoils and go? But beloved, just think about, think about Sodom's offer. There, there is a subtle temptation in Sodom's offer. If Abram was to accept it, then he would be placing himself in Sodom's debt. It was as if this wicked king was the one who enriched Abram. If he accepted, if Abram accepted Sodom's offer, it would mean throwing in his lot, no pun intended, with Sodom. And this would rob God of His glory because it would look as though Sodom, not God, was the one who had blessed Abraham and made him rich. Right? To accept Sodom's offer would be to side with Sodom, to take part in the alliance with Sodom. Oh, beloved, how might success be a snare to us? And when things are going well, it can be tempting become comfortable and complacent, perhaps to forget God. We may be less inclined to give thanks and praise to God. Perhaps some of us may be tempted by pride. You know, we, we, we experience some measure of success and we pat ourselves on the back saying, well done. You deserve it. You've earned it. Well done. And perhaps we subtly boast of what we have done and we rely less on God. You know, it's a simple question to ask, but you know, consider this. Are we more prayerful or less prayerful in good times than in tough times? You know, having tasted of what the world has to offer, our hearts can be drawn away. Right? We kind of taste a bit of the fruits of success in the world. And, and often that can become a snare, sort of drawing us away from God, sort of leading us to trust in the fruits of success rather than in the one who gives us that success. How might prosperity entice us to compromise with worldliness and to pursue selfish ambition? How did Abraham respond to Sodom's tempting offer? It says in verse, verses 22 to 24, But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord that's taking a vow, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. 
So Abraham let his allies take their share of the spoils, but he himself rejected the offer and refused to be in Sodom's debt. He would have nothing to do with this wicked king. And Abraham swears an oath, right, raising his hands before God, that he will have no association with Sodom. I think that this calls to mind a, a passage in the New Testament, doesn't it? James 4, where it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And beloved, think about this. It, it took a lot of faith. It, it took real faith for Abraham to turn his back on Sodom. Right? Abraham's just defeated Kidaloma, and, and Kidaloma, if he's, if he's a king worth his salt, will not take this defeat lying down, right? It would be very natural for Kidaloma to go back, to raise another army, and to come back maybe the next year, and just try to wipe Abraham out. But Abraham here, he's, he's turning his back on Sodom, who could be a very helpful ally in his battle, in, you know, perhaps in future battles with Kidaloma. But Abraham says, no, you know, I, I'm, I'm trusting in God. I'm, I'm not relying on these worldly allies. I'm trusting in God. And, but, and besides this, doing battle with Kidaloma would have been costly for Abraham. And in those days, <clears throat> in those days, people would go to battle because they were looking forward to the spoils that the battle would win them. You know, that's how they get paid for the expense of going to war. But, but Abraham here, he's turning his back on the spoils of victory. He's bearing the cost of going to war himself without any hope of getting something in return. Yet Abraham was willing to sacrifice worldly gain to remain faithful to God. By faith, Abraham gave up earthly wealth and gain because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Like Moses after him, Abraham chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Beloved, what is God calling us to forsake for His sake? How is He calling us to turn away from the things of the world in order to truly love Him and follow Him? Why? Because we can trust Him. His promises will not fail. Because Abraham trusted in God's promise of blessing, he didn't have to rely on worldly ways of making himself rich. Now, how was Abraham able to remain steadfast in the face of such temptation? The answer is found in verses 18 to 20 of our passage. You notice how the passage is organized. You know, when you look at verses 17 to 24, you have Abraham's interactions with Sodom in verse 17 and then verses 21 to 24. But sandwiched in between is Abraham's interaction with this other king, Melchizedek, verses 18 to 20. And unlike Sodom, Melchizedek is generous and welcoming. You know, he shows hospitality to Abraham, bringing bread and wine out for Abraham and his, and his men. You know, some commentators have said that bread could be a symbol of life, wine a symbol of joy. This Melchizedek brings life and joy to Abram and his men. And there's a clear contrast between Sodom and 
Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an entirely different sort of king. As Hebrews 7 tells us, his name translates, means king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So, Sodom, king of wickedness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. Melchizedek is also a priest. He's a king, he's a priest of God Most High. He is a worshipper of Abraham's God. The Most High, and that's a significant name. That name points to how God is the creator of all things. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the Lord, the sovereign Lord of the universe. So Melchizedek represents this God, God Most High, and then he blesses Abraham, reminding Abraham that God has promised good to his people. Right? He says in verse 19, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. You know, it's such a timely reminder. He's, he's telling Abraham, Hey, Abraham, this, this God owns everything. So why do you need to trust in Sodom? When this God who owns everything is your God, and he will provide for you, and you can trust him. Beloved, we worship the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Why are we trying to make our own way in the world? Why can't we trust Him to provide all things for us? God rules over all of creation. Surely He can bless and provide for Abraham. And Melchizedek praises God as well for how God is the one who has given victory to Abraham. Or perhaps you know, heading off any potential for pride in Abram's heart. Right? Say, Abram, remember, it's not you who has, who has won this victory, but blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Verse 20. Abram's encounter with Melchizedek would have reminded him of how God is sovereign, good, and faithful to keep His word. So, beloved, when we are tempted to compromise with the world, remember Melchizedek, remember that God is most high and we can trust His promises for our good. Therefore, we don't have to give in to the pull of this world. We don't have to give in to any temptation that leads us to depend on the ways and means of this fallen world to help ourselves. As it says in James 1, do not be deceived my beloved brothers and sisters, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from God Most High, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, beloved, that is the best antidote to temptation, right? to remember God, to know that He is truly possessor of heaven and earth and we can trust Him. Like what Melchizedek did for Abram, we can also remind one another of God's goodness and grace because we are so prone to forget on our own that we need the community of God's people to come around us and to speak reminders into our life to say, hey, remember, we worship the possessor of heaven and earth. Don't be anxious. Don't fear. Don't fall back on the ways of this world. Trust Him and walk with Him. He is a God who is faithful to keep His promises to us. And we can speak this truth to one another. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Verse 20, 
which shows Melchizedek's greatness, right? his superiority, even over Abram. And later on in Scripture, Hebrews would make the argument that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. You know, Aaron is a descendant of Abram, and Levi, well, Levi and then Aaron are descendants of Abram. And Israel's high priest would come from the line of Aaron. But if Abram is blessed by Melchizedek, then Melchizedek is superior to Abram, and he's certainly superior to the priesthood that would come from Aaron as well. So Melchizedek represents a better priesthood. Melchizedek is mentioned without a genealogy, which is striking because Genesis contains so many genealogies, but Melchizedek seems to just pop up out of nowhere. His birth nor death are mentioned. Genesis gives the impression that Melchizedek had no beginning or end. And Hebrews 7 says this of him, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek appears on the scene and he encourages us to trust in God who blesses us through his high priest. That's how Melchizedek is functioning in Genesis 14. He's showing us that blessing from the Most High God is mediated to us through a priest-king who represents God. You know, Melchizedek is mentioned only twice in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14 here and in Psalm 110. Yet this intriguing Old Testament character tells us much about Jesus. Melchizedek is functioning as a type of Christ, a pattern or a model that points forward to Jesus. And in fact, in Psalm 110, as we heard in the call to worship earlier, David says this of his Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the Levitical priesthood, but after a new order, the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is the priest-king who fulfills Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Melchizedek points us to Jesus, the priest-king. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in this new priest-king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. If you want to be blessed by the Most High, the only way for blessing to come to us from the Most is that Jesus stands between us and the Most High as our mediator. He represents God to us and He represents us to God. How? Jesus, this priest-king, laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin to bring us back to God. And in Christ, our great high priest, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Therefore, when we are, con- when we are tempted to conform to the world, we look to Melchizedek, and then we look to the one to whom Melchizedek pointed. We look to Jesus, the priest-king, who saves us and who brings us back to God. And this priest-king knows us. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we can draw near to God Most High through Jesus, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And because we have this priest-king through whom blessing has come, 
We can say no to the world because Jesus is enough. Because Jesus is enough. So Mark Twain and Karl Marx were wrong. Biblical faith is not pie in the sky. Real faith is for the real world. Faith is trusting in the faithful Most High God who has kept His word by sending the priest king, Jesus, His Son, for us. And this priest king has defeated sin and death. Therefore, He is able to bless and to save to the uttermost all who put their trust in Him alone. He is our hope and confidence. We can cling to Christ when we face trials and temptations. As John Newton says, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. So when we suffer or when our hearts feel the pull of the world, look to Jesus. Trust Him. All of God's promises find their yes in Him. So how are we walking by faith in Jesus Christ, the King of righteousness and the King of peace? Which king will we serve? Sodom or Salem? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you. You are the most high God, ruler of the heavens and the earth, possessor of all things. You are the creator, the sovereign Lord of the universe. As we come to you, we recognize how small we are, and yet we wonder that you should pay attention to us. Who are we that you should think on us? Father, we praise and thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for how Christ has come as priest and king to save those who have wandered far from you. We thank you that how, for how you have rescued us from sin slavery through your Son and you've set us free to know you, to enjoy you and to live for you. So Father, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would turn us away from the pool of the world. Help us to trust you and your promises so gloriously fulfilled in Christ. Father, we pray that you will work in our hearts by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes to behold the majesty and the glory of Christ, especially in times when trials and temptations obscure our view of you. So, Father, show yourself to us again, that we might know you and trust you and follow you. Help us, we pray, for we bear your name. Glorify your name in us. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.